this episode, I talked to Dr. Matthew Silk from the University of Exeter. Matt and I talk about how COVID has affected our work, his journey from the PhD through a couple of postdocs, along with what is next for him, his recent paper, Perils and Pitfalls of Mixed Effects Regression Models in Biology, which is why I reached out to Matt in the first place, and statistics more generally. At the end, Matt gives some advice about being brave when contacting uh, potential advisors. Yeah, so the you're, you're just saying that you haven't really been into the office in six months. Is that kind of standard over in UK that nobody is, everyone's at home? I think it's a little bit variable. I think, um, so certainly my university, the University of Exeter, um, the staff has, have recently started going into offices when they have individual offices. Um, and there's even a bit of teaching starting on the campus. Um, but a lot of the PhD students and postdocs who would be in shared offices are still working from home. They've opened up some of the lab space for people who are doing lab research, but obviously there are restrictions on who's allowed in um, mm -hmm. just because of kind of social distancing requirements in the labs. Um, but yeah, people like me who do a lot of computer-based stuff are basically, we we aren't, like, I'm not going in for the foreseeable future either, I don't think, um, unless yeah. I had a particularly good reason to need to be working in the office. Um, yeah, I think I think that works for some of us who have nice spaces to work in, but it's hard for others when. Yeah, I mean it's super tricky because for most of that time I've been, um, it's been me and my housemate, um, and we basically had to sacrifice our dining table to be office space, um, and then like the last couple of months my partner's been here as well, so then there were three of us working in one house. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And we're quite lucky. We have a re I have a reasonable place to work in. Our internet connection is not great, but it is fairly reliable. Like, if you want to up, if anyone wants to upload anything to an email or like to submit a manuscript, then that kind of drops the internet for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and we can just about handle two. We could just about handle two video meetings at a time. But um, I can only imagine a lot of people are in worse situations. Yeah. Yeah, running kids running around screaming the whole time in the background or something. What's it like with you? Are you, you it sounded like you're back doing lots of lab work. Um, well, yeah. So um, I guess most of the university is still shut down. Um, we, I've been working remotely or from home for most of the year, um, which has been nice because my partner lives in another state. Um, which is, it's like a 12 hour drive. So, um, it's, it's hard to even visit, but since it's been remote, I, I've been able to visit a lot more, but, um, yeah. And then I guess I am doing some field work. I've got a couple of, um, undergraduate students who are helping me with some stuff. And, and the nice thing is it's outside and they, they can still distance and wear masks and stuff, uh, when we're out working and, and things like that. So, um, but other than that, yeah, I'm just doing computer-based stuff now. So analyzing data and writing up manuscripts and stuff. So it's kind of a convenient time for me as I'm wrapping up the PhD and I don't need to be in spaces full of people. Yeah, I mean, that's really fortunate timing, I guess. I've kind of, I've felt the same a lot over a lot of the pandemic. Like I feel really grateful to be someone who works a lot analyzing other data sets or having lots of papers to work on anyway, rather than especially in the UK where people have are doing three year PhDs, like it's a massive deal for people to lose an entire year's worth of 
field work or lab work. Um, yeah, yeah. We we have I think more time to. <laughs> I, I think the average here is almost six years. So. Um, I guess one field season might not be the end of the world, but I think people are still stressed out about it. Okay. Um, I guess if, if, uh, you want to just introduce yourself a little bit and, and kind of say where you are in your career and, um, what you've done and what kinds of things you study and that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, so I'm Matthew Silk and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the university of Exeter. Um, so I live way down in the southwest of the UK in a place called Cornwall, um, so away from the main University of Exeter campus. Um, I've been based here since my PhD, so I did my PhD um, down at the Penrhyn campus of the University of Exeter, and then this is my second postdoc in the same place. Um, so I really started off as a behavioural ecologist during my PhD, um, working on the social behaviour of um, Brent geese, which are um, a migratory bird species and studying the social networks and social connections of their foraging groups during winter and spring staging and looking at the impacts that had on um, foraging behavior and on um, body condition during those periods. Um, I then kind of um, moved away from that a little bit with my first postdoc which kind of took those social network approaches and statistical approaches and, and applied them to study and bovine tuberculosis in European badgers. Um, so European badgers are a really important um, reservoir for bovine TB in the UK, which is um, an agricultural disease that costs the UK government about 100 million pounds a year to manage. Um, so that research was really looking at um, the structure of badger social networks and the implication of that social network, that social network structure for um, the transmission of um, infection. Um, so it kind of mixed a lot of um, analysis of existing data and kind of long-term databases from our main study site, but also um, a lot of fieldwork as well, fitting um, biologging devices to badges and kind of studying their social networks um, in real time as well. Um, and then my most recent postdoc um, is supported by the university, um, working with the head of department, um, and it's been a much um, kind of freer role, kind of more like a kind of European fellowship, I guess, where I work on a variety of different projects um, that my boss, Dave Hodgson, is interested in or that I'm interested in. Um, and so we've pursued um, various aspects of the badger research. Um, we've done some infectious disease modeling. Um, and we've also written the perils and pitfalls paper as well. Um, mm -hmm. So a whole kind of hodgepodge of different projects mixed together. And, and so how did you go about getting these postdocs? Was it you, you knew the people sort of in the department already and you, you wanted to stay or did people approach you and say, oh, you, you are the network person. Like, can you, can you use your methods over here on this stuff or how did that sort of go? Um, so to be honest, that first postdoctoral role, um, I applied for while I was writing up my PhD. Um, and I actually going into it, I saw it as a really good opportunity to apply for a postdoc in an environment that I knew and with a PI that I didn't know very well, but I knew a lot of it and kind of saw it as an actually an opportunity to get good feedback on an application. I knew it was a situation where it well, in that, in, in that stage, kind of in my mind, when I got rejected from the, from the application, it would actually be a really good opportunity to find out what I needed to do better and what I needed to, um, what I needed to improve for future applications. So, um, 
that was an application with at the same university but I kind of it wasn't um it was kind of kind of it felt kind of lucky in a way um my second post postdoctoral role um came when the Badger project was kind of winding down um, and my current PI was a co-I on that grant um, and he had this three-year postdoc coming up and he talked to me and kind of asked me if I wanted to do it. Um, so at that stage I was applying for um, various other positions elsewhere um, but I just really liked um, the idea of having kind of a bit more freedom to pursue different research projects and kind of extend my skills kind of beyond social networks, pick up some new skills and kind of and take the opportunity to do something different. Um, mm-hmm. So that kind of describes where I am at the moment. Um, yeah, it sounds very important to pick up new skills, especially in the postdoc uh, role. I mean, I guess what's just a out of curiosity, what's next for you? Are you are you still currently looking or are you pretty stable in this position now for, for some time or? Um, so my current role's actually finishing at the end of this year. Um, so my contract finishes in December. Um, and I'm still um, kind of weighing up exactly what's likely to happen next. Um, it's looking quite possible that I've got a postdoc starting at the University of Tennessee um, next next year. But there's a lot that's ri- there's a lot kind of riding on that in terms of waiting to s- hear how visas would work out and obviously the COVID situation. Um, because it's a relatively short, a, a kind of role for a relatively short period of time. So mm-hmm. that is potentially the next situation, but I don't know whether I'll be able to travel to Tennessee, whether I'll be able to kind of conduct the work remotely, um, whether visas will work out. So it's kind of a little bit up in the air. Um, yeah. And then the other thing that I'm doing a lot at the moment is um, pursuing opportunities to apply for research fellowships. Um, so those are like I guess ind- independent research grants that you can apply for in Europe, in particular, kind of between being a postdoc, but before you've applied, before you've got your first kind of tenure track or lecturing job. Um, so I applied for one European fellowship um, this year, and I'm looking into other fellowship op- opportunities in the UK and further afield as well. I guess uh, I think that message will resonate with a lot of people. Just, I mean, myself, I'm looking for postdocs as I finish up, and and I'm also worried about COVID and and trying to think, okay, what skills can I gather, and will I be able to work remotely or or move there and stuff like that. So, um, seems like you're probably not alone there. <laughs> no, no, I'm no, I'm very, I'm I'm very far from being alone. And in general, so far, I've been very lucky in um, where my career has taken me or even where my career hasn't needed to take me. Um, but it is that kind of battle um, of finding somewhere where I want to be doing something that's interesting um, and also trying to balance where I am kind of in relation to my partner in particular. It's kind of those cl- mm-hmm. classic kind of postdoc and PhD struggles that I think everyone's really <laughs> familiar with. Um, yeah. And, and do you would you like to stay in academia or do you have like a, a desired sort of end position? Um, I think for now, I would really like to stay in academia, but I feel I haven't kind of, that decision isn't kind of my final decision. I'm going to give it my best shot um, and see where I get to. And if it doesn't work out, then so be it. Um, Mm -hmm. I kind of, I think there's a real importance for me of living somewhere where I want to be and making sure that I'm doing something that I'm happy doing at the moment, kind of rather than reaching a specific end goal. Um, And so 
I think there'll be only so... Yeah, basically, we'll see where it gets to, but I'm not 100% committed if it didn't work out. Yeah, I think that's a good attitude to have. <laughs> I think, um, you know, the num. I mean, it's non-random, but the numbers generally work out that, you know, most people don't stay in academia, whether by choice or not. But, and again, that's not random. So it's it's not like you couldn't if, if you were really pushing for it. But but to have that attitude, I think, is, is a good good one. Um, I guess the, so the reason I contacted you uh, is something, you, so you mentioned a few of the things you've worked on and perils and pitfalls is one of those. And so uh, maybe we can just talk about that a little bit. So you, you wrote this paper along with a couple others called Perils and Pitfalls of Mixed Effects Regression Models in Biology, um, which was published in PRJ sometime this year, a couple of months ago. And um, so I, I was wondering if you just wanted to kind of lay out a little bit of the motivation behind it or, or sort of maybe some of the conversations you guys had leading up to this project and sort of the importance of it and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, so this was really um, a paper that, or a paper that output that we discussed um, together really from the start of my role with Dave Hodgson, who's the senior author on that paper. Um, and it was a paper that he was very interested in putting together. I think um, he and Zav Harrison, who is the um, other co-author, had written a paper in PeerJ providing a kind of very basic introduction to mixed effects models. Um, and they found the response to that and kind of the response to that kind of really overwhelming. Um, and I think it was re received very positively. Um, and so Dave was very keen to kind of follow up that paper, I think, um, and point out some of the um, potential issues that might arise when using some of these approaches. So we talked about that um, a fair bit when I first started working with him, which is nearly three years ago now. Um, and kind of following that, I went and did a lot of reading and trying to read not just in the kind of ecological literature and some of the papers that we're all very familiar with, but kind of much more widely and kind of settled on um, an idea based around kind of random effects and um, kind of things that you really need to think about when using random effects in mixed effects models um, and potentially things that many people, myself included, sometimes in the past have done wrong previously and where the information is not necessarily readily available. So I don't think any of that paper is kind of novel in its findings, but what I think it does really nicely is kind of synthesizes a lot of this information and I hope provides it in a, in a way that is understandable to a kind of much broader audience rather than people who already have a kind of real interest in um, these statistical analyses. Um, and yeah. So, oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I, I, I really think that is, is why, um, you know, so that I think it's a 2018 paper, the Harrison et al that, that you were referring to earlier, that was really well received. Um, if, if it's not, I, I know that there are a couple of those, but, you know, I, I think that one for me and your paper, this more recent one are written in a way that, that anyone can understand it. And it's very approachable and a lot of statistical texts you know, there's a, a lot more equations and a lot more math that I think scares a lot of people away. And it makes it a lot harder for people to actually absorb kind of what it's saying. Um, and so I think you guys did a really good job at just making it accessible to everyone. And, and so I do think these things are really important. And, and just to back up briefly for anyone listening, um, if they haven't read your paper yet, um, they should 
first of all. <laughs> um, but it's it, it outlines seven perils of these mixed effects methods, um, and then also offers some solutions, gives some examples of the types of data that you might run into these perils with. And um, I, I think it's a very good piece of work that, that a lot of, you know, I, I think graduate students and postdocs in particular are, are doing a lot of a lot of the work and as a lot of these methods um, are being developed and more easily accessible right with R and, and a lot of open source sort of free free software that we can use on our laptops we have a lot of people doing these sorts of statistical analyses that don't have a, a super in-depth sort of breadth of knowledge about them and so these sorts of introductory texts I think are very good places to start and then just refer back to um, multiple times. So I guess to go back to you, what is, so what is sort of the most important takeaway? I mean, is there one, one thing or just is the takeaway, you know, to, to be informed and understand what you're doing before you're doing it? Yeah, I think that, that probably would be one of the main things I want, I want people to take away is don't be afraid, but be informed. Um, I think these things are kind of really intimidating when you first start using them. And like you say, it's very hard to, um, with everything else that grad students and postdocs and a lot of people conducting these analyses are doing, it's very hard to take time to sit back and learn exactly how they work. And often that requires quite an in-depth understanding of the maths. And so it really is that idea of these are all potential um, perils or pitfalls of the process. But actually what we tried to do all through the paper was actually point out that fitting mixed models is actually quite robust to violating some of these assumptions. Obviously, others, some are worse than others. Um, and as long as you're aware aware of the potential that they might cause and kind of have, idea, have some of the solutions in mind as you kind of go about these processes, um, then it can help fit, um, fit these models better and be more confident in the inferences you make. I know for a fact that, I mean, I've worked with enough different ecological data sets that I'm aware of all of the kind of complexities and difficulties. So I always try and take a kind of very pragmatic approach to kind of identifying flaws in analyses and ways to do things better and to kind of find the right compromise. And, and I think, again, that's potentially an aspect of coming from an ecological background more then that applies to all three of us who wrote that paper rather than a more statistical background. Yeah. And I, I you know, I think, well, so, so why do you think so many people struggle with statistics? I don't know. I, I guess, I mean, it must be I kind of feel it's very difficult to comment on lots of different people's or lots of people's experiences as they go through their kind of education and training in biology and ecology. But, but I think first and foremost, the really important thing is that actually these a lot of the modeling approaches we use now are really complex and the maths that underlies them is often challenging and what we kind of underestimate because it's so easily available and re readily available in all these um software packages is that the things we're doing are actually incredibly complicated and i think kind of combined with that i feel less maybe less so recently to some extent but there's always been kind of not as much training in these mathematical and statistical approaches as there are in all of the other kind of the knowledge that we have in ecology and training in field techniques and things like that. I feel certainly during my undergraduate degree, our statistical training was really minimal. Um, hmm. 
and also it wasn't particularly consistent so I remember going to a series to a one course and um, one lecture series where we were taught to um, do stats in Minitab and it was only really on a field course that we were taught some of the very basics of R um, and beginning to use R for projects and I was very fortunate in having supervisors undergraduate project supervisors who encouraged us to do a little bit more in R albeit it was still very basic stuff um, and then I guess having a PhD that was very quantitative that kind of let me develop those skills further yeah, but I think but... yeah I would say that the things we do in ecology now are actually very challenging or very complex or they are complex and challenging maths that are hiding behind more simple and kind of coding and formulae um, and right. so we in, shouldn't in, underestimate the kind of the complexity of the stats that we're asked to do um, and the kind of amount of training it would require to kind of fully understand those yeah and it, it seems like a lot of these methods are so flexible right because and that's i think what you're getting at when you say that you know maybe the interface to a lot of these um you know the coding language or something might be sort of simplified for the general user but but underneath there's a lot more flexibility that could be sort of um used and when we think about you know so my undergrad training in statistics is is really you know t-tests wilcox and rank sum ANOVA or something, you know, and that's sort of, that's sort of it. And you, you get those, um, you know, dichotomous keys where it says, you know, are your data over dispersed or are they normal? And, and there's always like a test and there's, a, it's, it's, they try to make it much more straightforward. You know, here's, everything's in a bin and this is exactly, if you follow this dichotomous key, you will know exactly what test you need to run. Whereas now, you know, I think things are so much more flexible and, and like you say, ecology is very messy. And so it's not, it's not always a very controlled experiment in a lab. It's, you know, a bunch of things you can't quite control for with the, you know, the, the structure of an experiment or, or a study, but that you might be able to sort of control for with statistics. Yeah. I think that's a really point, important point in itself is that ecology lends itself to data sets that are particularly difficult to, an, un, to analyze. Um, especially field ecology um, where like you say it's hard to design experiments you're offering often analyzing observational data with kind of multiple confounding variables um, and these things these things are challenging from a modeling perspective kind of from a, kind of from that starting point even in even in that perils and pitfalls paper we did very little in terms of our simulated examples to keep them simple we very much used a kind of and general linear model modeling or general linear mixed models framework rather than opening it up to considering um, generalized generalized linear mixed models so kind of Poisson models and binomial models and things and, and so I also noticed in the paper you guys I mean I think it's even in the abstract you guys are, are very open to you know frequentist or Bayesian you're not you're not really um, saying one's better than the other or anything which I think is great um, and then I, but I also noticed, you know, a lot of the solutions, not all of them, but a lot of the solutions were to sort of move to a, a Bayesian approach. Um, and so I, I just wonder out of curiosity, are, are, are you guys mostly, do you do most of your statistics um, or you specifically in a Bayesian framework or do you do, you, do you use a little bit of both and, and when might you use one over the other? Yeah, so that's kind of interesting actually, because I feel I guess I've got two parts of my answer to that in that um, a lot of the analyses that I do are um, 
social network analyses and so they don't always fit within this kind of more simple and um, well not more simple they don't really fit within this the kind of mixed modeling framework as much in that they often use other statistical approaches developed in social sciences or things like permutation tests and random and randomizations um, to test null hypotheses um, in other work i've i've used both frequentist and bayesian approaches um, i'd say i've i've moved a little bit more towards being a bayesian recently but not kind of not spectacularly so and part of that is driven by by the software package brooms and its interface with stan which i think is a fantastic way of fitting um bayesian models in r and a lot of the kind of the coding is very similar to lme4 so it's a very natural transition um, and some of the reasons that i originally moved more towards that were actually just that it was more flexible with the types of models you could fit um, so fitting kind of zero inflated models and zero inflated mixed models i found that was the first tool that allowed me to do that very easily um, mm -hmm. there are um, i've now used um glnm tmb a lot bit more and mm -hmm. obviously that now has kind of higher more flexibility than lme4 did originally um, and that kind of um, means i've kind of gone back to not necessarily using one approach over the other um, mm -hmm. i know to be honest i think both dave and zav are probably pretty similar in that regard like i've worked with dave on um, analyses that use MCMC GLMM, so another Bayesian approach, but I've also seen him use um, frequentist approaches as well. So I guess that kind of comes with the bit I was saying earlier about me being kind of somewhat of a pragmatist and I will use an approach that I feel is working as long as I'm feeling relatively com com feeling confident that it's I can feel happy with the kind of inference and the answers it's providing. Um, I've tried to avoid in the past mixing both in a single paper. Yeah, <laughs> sure. yeah for for reviewers' own sake. Yeah. The other yeah, the I... other bit I really enjoy about um, Bayesian model fitting, and this is somewhat specific to to the BRMS, the Brums package, at least for now, is I really like using um, Bayes factors to compare between different models, um, and again, um, Brums allows me to calculate them very easily for different models i find it a very intuitive way of describing the kind of relative support for two different models yeah and i, I guess i mean just to go on with that a little bit i i was reluctant to do bayesian analyses for a while um just because i, I had sort of had this impression that they were a lot more complicated and just harder to understand and i've been working working with them more, they're actually more intuitive, kind of, as you're saying, especially in the sort of the results or discussion sections of, of a manuscript where you might be interpreting the posterior distribution or something rather than it's less than 0 0.05 or it's not. And it's sort of the, the significance is, is either there or it's not. And it, it's not that you have to interpret your data that way, but I think a lot of times reviewers can be weird about, you know, interpreting the outcome or the sort of the estimates of a model when there is no significance, you know, maybe it's 0 0.06 or something. Whereas in a Bayesian approach, it's, it's much more straightforward to just sort of talk about how much of that posterior doesn't overlap zero, for example. The other, the other thing that, that I would say about having learned some of these Bayesian models and some of my first 
kind of some of the first learning I did on Bayesian modeling was in Wimbugs and in Jags. Um, mm. And actually learning to code models in those bits of software, I learned so much about how fitting mixed models actually works. Um, and so I'd kind of, I think that's a real advantage of, of kind of, of heading in that Bayesian direction. Maybe some of the more recent developments don't help quite so much in that regard, but going in and understanding kind of how the likelihood functions work and how the likelihood functions updates your updates your prior distribution to kind of end up with the posterior meant I ended up feeling kind of more comfortable in my knowledge of how kind of how that model fitting process works and in, in particular how the likelihood function works and kind of reading back again how both the maximum likelihood and the Bayesian approaches work to estimate the kind of likelihood. Um, do you guys use Stan at all or is that I so I personally haven't used Stan in its own right. So the BRMS Brims package I was talking about is an interface for Stan. Um, gotcha. So that you can code a model as if it's an LME4 model and it interfaces with Stan to fit a Bayesian model. Um, I personally haven't used Stan itself. It's been one of those things that I've kind of been intending to learn for a little while and never quite had time to get around to. Well, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you. And um, I guess I guess just a couple of last thoughts. Um, you know, somebody who is looking for postdocs themselves, I mean, do you, do you have any advice for people you know, finishing up uh, graduate school or looking for postdocs or anything like that, that, that you wish you would have heard at that, that, that stage? I think don't try not to be afraid of getting in touch with people if you're really inspired by their research and, and interested in things that they do. Um, I know that's a difficult thing to do. It's not something that has ever come particularly naturally to me. You know, I, I think we're often intimidated by others in the field. Just we look at their CV or we look at their Google Scholar account and we see how much they've done. And, and a lot of us starting where we haven't done very much, it just feels like you know, why, why would they want to work with me? You know, um, I know that I, I feel that way too. And so I, I think that's good advice to just go for it because, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? They, they might say no, <laughs> you know, um, you'll be fine. And yeah, I think, I mean, that in itself, I think highlights something that's really important is try not to judge yourself too much by comparing, by comparing yourself to other people. It's very easy to do to look at other people's Google Scholar pages in particular and kind of be intimidated by things. I think another thing I did at the end of my PhD, I don't know how well this works for everyone, but was trying to, was kind of, for example, at a conference, which doesn't work so well in COVID times, but um, trying to ask a question every day um, of someone at a talk whose work I might be interested in or going up or um, to try and kind of help me if I went up and talked to them afterwards because um, I'm terrible at that and just going up and kind of pushing my way into a conversation and talking to someone. Um, so trying to set myself little goals like that was something I did at the end of my PhD. I'm not sure whether anything actually came of it. Well, that, that's actually how this podcast started is we had this invited seminar um, every week. And right now it's, I mean, with COVID, it's kind of weird and maybe we have some remote sessions, but you know, one day a week, somebody would come to our department and there'd be this list where you could sign up to just have a 30 minute conversation with people. 
and I didn't always know what to talk about or I felt a little sometimes awkward about it. So I just thought, okay, well, I'll sort of formalize a little bit of a structure around, you know, work life or, or academic life or something like that. And it will just be a way for me to have these conversations with people who I may or may not be interested in working with, but just to, just to practice conversations, um, talking about research and, and other things with, with other academics who are, who are much further in their career than I am. No, I think some of those conversations are incredibly important. Um, and you might, you might kind of forge links that you didn't expect or get to know people well that you didn't kind of, or learn, kind of learn useful things that you didn't realize before. Um, so like my, um, the postdoc that I might be doing next year, depending on, um, visas and everything else come, came about through meeting someone at, a, um, at a workshop at Nimbios at the university of Tennessee. Um, and just kind of realizing that we got on fairly well and kind of kept working together on different things. Um, so again, I was, I was very lucky to get the invitation to that, but I hadn't, I wouldn't have envisaged this time last year, say, um, how that kind of period of a year has worked out and how it's led to kind of an employment um, opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think everyone's always happy to have excuses to talk about science um, or <laughs> wants to hear of people like their science. So um, that kind of goes, goes hand in hand with the don't be afraid to get in touch with people and just be friendly and nice. Well, it all sounds like sound advice. Well, thank you again, uh, Matt. It, it's really been a pleasure and uh, I appreciate your time. No worries.